Okay, uh, this lecture is going to cover the first half or so of the 19th century for Japan, bringing us into the uh, end of the Bakufu, the Bakumatsu period, and more or less up to the eve of the so-called Meiji Restoration of 1868 that marked the political inauguration of Japan as a modern state. Uh, it, we're going to start off by winding the clock back a bit into the 18th century uh, in a couple of places to sort of appreciate the longer context in which the 19th century played out. Uh, as I've said before, because I cover the history of Japan in more depth and granularity in some other classes, uh, these lectures on Japan don't always go into the same level of detail uh, as those on China and Korea for this class. I'm trying to put a little bit more emphasis on uh, those countries, even though obviously, as you've seen, and as I'm sure you already know, uh, the regional history is sort of deeply intertwined. But particularly from this point forward, lectures on Japan will sometimes be a little bit uh, broader uh, in their sketchiness, I suppose, uh, of history than the China and Korea lectures. Uh, as we discussed in the last couple of lectures, by the turn of the 19th century, Japan, like both China and Korea, was in slow decline. Now, it's quite possible that this is primarily a judgment in retrospect, given that outside pressure caused massive upheaval in all three countries, and of course, you know, lots of other places around the world as well. Uh, perhaps all such regimes are in crisis when we cherry pick from the perspective of the present, looking for the weaknesses and problems that made it impossible to withstand the onslaught of the Imperial West. Given time and non-interference, perhaps all three countries would have righted the ship of state, and the internal crises we see now would have looked like blips on the screen. Now, we can't know this, but it is worth remembering that any look that we take back at the last days of the Tokugawa, or for that matter, the Cheng and Joseon dynasties, is through a prism that distorts our vision, right? We already know the outcome, uh, which, of course, nobody at the time did. In any case, for Tokugawa Japan, the 18th century uh, had, in fact, been a difficult one, something I alluded to in the previous talk on Japan. The causes of what I described then as a low-grade, chronic internal crisis were complicated. Uh, several factors, though, deserve our attention. First, there was the conflict between merit and heredity. The official doctrine of the Tokugawa shogunate was based on Neo-Confucianism, and a Confucian ruler was qualified for that status by merit. In China, merit was cultivated by study, confirmed by examinations. Similar examinations had been used in Japan in earlier centuries, but Tokugawa samurai faced no such tests. They had a hereditary claim to rank and to income. Official appointments were roughly pegged to those birthrights. For much of the Tokugawa era, little effort was made to reconcile the contradiction between meritocratic principle and hereditary practice. Scholars and rulers alike preached the importance, in principle, of recruiting the wise and the strong to the domain and bakufu offices. But hereditary rank and family income continued to be the most important influence on the career path of individual samurai. In this sense, the situation resembled Korea more than it did China. As the perception deepened in the 1700s that society was facing some kind of crisis, complaints increased about the failure of rulers to appoint men of talent to high office. Furthermore, while authority remained with the shogun, the daimyo, and the samurai, the so-called warrior class as a whole, 
In the increasingly commerce-driven world of late Tokugawa, power was shifting to actual men of talent, men of talent in business, rank and title notwithstanding. To put it another way, some of the problems that the Tokugawa shogunate encountered in its second century were the result of what we would now call progress. The shogunate was increasingly perplexed about how to deal with the great flourishing of commerce that peace and tranquility had brought. While the townsmen, especially the merchants, enjoyed overall and sometimes conspicuous prosperity, the shogunate and the samurai class in general, still overwhelmingly dependent on agriculture for their income, found themselves more and more financially hard-pressed, not uniformly across the board, but in many cases, as the result of market fluctuations and the inflationary drift of the times. Similarly, though less importantly until the 1860s, the bifurcation of power and authority between shogun and emperor was a source of potential trouble. In short, the authority of the shogun and the power it conferred was delegated by, and therefore derivative of and dependent on, imperial authority. As they did in 19th century China and Korea, environment and economy also conspired against the Tokugawa. Unequal development within the villages, which is something mentioned in previous lectures, when coupled with uh, periodic famines and ineffective responses to them, led to increasingly uh, severe unrest, especially in the countryside. It didn't help in this sense that the urban-rural gap was so stark. The spectacle of wealthy merchants and townspeople living it up in Edo, often at the expense of struggling farmers caught in increasingly complicated futures market loan schemes and the like, was destabilizing. It was also just the bigger picture of what was happening closer to home, as rich peasants took advantage of their neighbors on a similar but smaller scale. Economic fortunes re uh, varied by region, as well as by status and socioeconomic class, and of course, individual luck and talent. As the economy became more complex and productive, it offered both opportunities and risks. Without effective redistribution measures in place, the disparities of wealth and power in villages grew wider. The rural upper crust became more literate, more mobile. Rich farmers had land and cash to invest. They had the education and information to make better decisions. The same was true of their merchant class cousins in the cities, to the detriment not only of the average subsistence farmer, but also increasingly the ostensible ruling class, in other words, the samurai. The phenomena of the urban-rural gap rural poverty, and resulting unrest are important in the Tokugawa period, but they are also a pattern that repeats with disastrous results throughout uh, the coming centuries into the 1930s, and then becomes a crucial factor garnering bottom-up support for top-down social renovation during the years leading to all-out war in the mid-20th century. So it's important to sort of see the pattern here and keep it in mind. One useful, useful measure of the decreasing vitality of the Tokugawa regime as a whole is population. Pre-modern population is of course notoriously difficult to measure, but we do have some fairly consistent estimates for the Tokugawa period. For example, it's widely believed that in the first century of shogunal rule, the population of the archipelago leaped from about 18 million to about 30. Afterward, there were no major long-term increases. In 1872, the population stood at only 33.1 million. Between 1700 and 1850, Japan's castle towns showed an average population loss of about 18% or so. 
This is a correlative to Conrad Tottman's argument that the years around 1700 witnessed the end of four centuries or more of sustained economic growth that Japan had experienced as intensive agriculture spread across the realm. In other words, Tottman, who is an environmental historian, argues that despite the chaos and violence that characterized the macro-level history of the Warring States period, which precedes the ascension of the Tokugawa, the population had continued to grow so that the 17th century was not simply one of rebound from a depleted place baseline. In the event, untalented, unimaginative rulers out of touch with the economic realities of the realm and impoverished by the demands of their own status identity at the hands of the merchant class were entirely unready to meet the new challenges of economic stagnation and its consequences and accompanying phenomena. The foment of unrest was reaching fever pitch even without the arrival of American warships in the 1850s. There are many reasons for late Tokugawa stagnation. Uh, my own personal argument uh, borrows a great deal from Tottman. Later marriages, which means less time to have children. The custom of primogeniture, in other words, having only the first son marry and inherit. Widespread seasonal migrant labor, which keeps couple apart, couples apart. In other words, lowering opportunities for reproduction, uh, at least within marriage. And also this places uh, increased burdens on child-rearing mothers. Major famines uh, and the resulting mass starvation increasing incidence of communicable diseases that accompanied urbanization, uh, widely practiced family planning, mostly by abortion and infanticide. All of these together uh, were, you know, there's no one individual factor that you can pull out and say, this is the reason, but together they all work to keep population growth uh, quite small. Another factor is the inability to expand tillable farmland. Responsible estimates concur that in the first half of the Tokugawa period, the amount of land being farmed nearly doubled. Even more striking is that the land area being farmed in the 1870s was only marginally larger than it had been in about 1720. Obviously, failure to open up more land for food production became a major limit on population expansion. Cultivators were more careful in the many steps of cropping, preparing soil for planting, selecting and preparing seeds to plant, warming irrigation water, regulating its flow, fertilizing, weeding, cultivating fields, controlling insects, taking in the harvest, and storing the yield. Many farmers doubled and in some places even triple cropped. As they fitted crops to field conditions more caref carefully, they used marginal lands more wisely. For example, growing uh, mulberry trees, tea, fruit trees, and they also produced in response to market opportunities, not just for subsistence. Moreover, as mentioned previously, uh, because Japan's peasant farmers enjoyed a very high literacy rate, uh, at least for the time, perhaps the highest in the world, they stored and shared knowledge about best practices in widely circulated manuals and how-to guides. Nevertheless, without major technological innovation or land expansion, intensification and commercialization of agriculture though it was responsible for some increase in overall yields, was not in itself sufficient to support the kind of demographic growth that had characterized the dynamic first century of Tokugawa rule. More generally, limitations and challenges resulting from resource scarcity seem to have been the most influential domestic variables at work in limiting the growth and quality of life in later Tokugawa Japan. One additional negative pressure on increased agricultural output was taxation. Taxes were collected uh, throughout almost the entire Tokugawa period as rice, 
with substitutions allowed for certain regions, etc. And while the system may not have specifically disincentivized agriculture, it did incentivize the growth of less efficiently taxed industries. Tottman makes one last fascinating point about the limits of growth in the latter half of the Tokugawa period, and that point is about labor, so we're going to return to it a little bit later. Before getting to that, though, the issue of family planning uh, troubles a lot of people, so I want to address it here. According to the new and best research on the subject in English, which is Fabian Drixler's uh, demographic history, Mabiki, if we add abortions to the victims of infanticide, their number must have come to about four in every 10 children over the long span of the Edo period, though the numbers fluctuated over time and uh, regionally, etc., for various reasons. The most important thing to realize about this, especially for those who come from religious and cultural backgrounds that abhor abortion and infanticide, is that before the 1790s, infanticide was widely regarded not just as ethically unproblematic, that's a sort of passive construction, but as socially responsible, that is an active uh, in other words, it's what you ought to do. To maintain the prosperity of the household and do right by the living children, the, the children who were chosen to live, parents had to keep that number small. Each new child meant less food, less care, less education, less inheritance for all of her older siblings. The good of the many outweighed the good of the few. And into this rational worldview, such as it was, were added folk religious and other justifications. For example, infants were described as liminal beings rather than fully formed humans, like adults or even uh, fully formed you know, creatures like animals. And because of this, they could be sent back essentially to the ether to await rebirth without doing great harm. Elaborate techniques uh, assisted them in select, assisted the people of the time in selecting the most promising newborns and added another level, level of justification for why some babies had to be thinned out, which was the agricultural metaphor that made most sense in an agrarian society. It's also the title of Drixler's book, Mabiki. If you plant more seeds than you need, and then thin them out, you allow the best of them to grow strongest. This was the farmer's tried and true mantra, and it still is today, because it works. This practice was then translated to the human realm to make the hard decision not to raise a child a little bit easier. And for those who find themselves judging this lack of respect for the sanctity of human life based on a religious background of monotheism, the Abrahamic religions in particular, uh, I think it's important to make two things clear. First, the Judeo-Christian and Muslim faiths have never obeyed their own commandment, thou shalt not kill. There are always reasons that this is bent, reinterpreted, etc., to meet the practical needs of individuals and of society. Second, Though the demographic evidence is not as copious as in Japan, it is certain that peasants in Christian Europe, for example, also practiced large-scale infanticide, often by, quote, commending to God their children by leaving them in the woods to be devoured by wolves, or something like that. In any case, it's probably true that repeated mass starvations in many areas of Japan, due to droughts on the one hand, excessive rainfall, floods, typhoons on the other, cold weather, volcanic ash, even swarms of locusts for those awaiting uh, punitive biblical plagues as retribution for the uh, family planning problem, uh, influenced the family planning regime, which many rural Japanese followed. Many of them saw up close what having too many mouths to feed meant, and decided it was better to take whatever measures possible and necessary to minimize the risk and suffering. 
The three most famous famines of the Tokugawa period all came in the latter half of the era of shogun rule. They are known as the Kyoho Famine, 1732-33, to the Temmei Famine, 82-87, to and the Tempo Famine of 1833-1836. to There were innumerable other food shortages resulting from inclement weather, bad harvest, etc. But these three major events are enough to get the very, very bleak picture. The Kyoho Famine affected mostly southwestern Japan. It was the result of a severe locust plague combined with unseasonably cold and wet weather in the summer. Stricken farmers flocked to the cities to seek relief, adding to the misery of urban residents. In 1733, for example, a large riot broke out in Edo. The Tokugawa shogunate organized relatively effective relief efforts, emptying its own grain reserves and granting loans and tax remissions to the most severely afflicted areas. It issued directives prohibiting rice hoarding, limiting sake production, and exhorting wealthy individuals and private institutions and religious institutions to provide food for the starving. In the various Han, about 2 million people were affected. More than 12,000 died of starvation, and relief finally came with the bumper crops of 1734 and 75, and, excuse me, 1734 and 1735. The Tenmei Famine was perhaps the worst of the entire Edo period. This was a very severe famine that affected nearly all of Japan, leading to several hundred thousand deaths. Unseasonable weather caused crop failures, and the difficulties were compounded by the eruption of the volcano Asamayama and by poor administration. Rice prices soared as speculators hoarded the meager harvest. The shogunate's relief efforts this time around were less effective. Edo attempted to meet the crisis by distributing relief, food, and money, and also by setting up shelters. But riots broke out in unprecedented scale and unprecedented numbers. In the most seriously affected northern provinces, what's now Tohoku, some were finally reduced to practicing cannibalism just to stay alive. A contemporary observer wrote, quote, During the three years of bad crops and famine, which occurred in 1783, over 2 million people in Oulu province alone starved to death. Now, this is surely an overestimation, but it is believed that several hundred thousand persons did perish, and much of the northern region remained uninhabited and unfarmed for years. Both of these tragedies occurred before foreign pressure began mounting on Japan around the dawn of the 19th century. And we're going to get to that in a moment, but it is worth pointing out that the last great famine of Edo struck Japan less than a decade before the First Opium War. The Tempo Famine once again struck all up and down the islands. Rice crops were exceptionally bad all over. Scarcity sent rice prices higher, and destitute peasants flocked to the cities, where many died of starvation or disease. Again, it was, uh, as it often was, uh, particularly bad in northeastern Japan. The Tokugawa shogunate and the various domains tried very hard to meet the crisis, they distributed rice, set up shelters, regulated prices, prohibited hoarding, and restricted sake production. But assistance measures were largely ineffective. And so one thing that you've seen here over the course of these three famines is that the response is less and less effective over time. One major consequence of the Temple Famine in particular was a restructuring of life in the agricultural villages. Those farmers who had the least land, the least resources, the least education, those were the people who were most severely impacted by these famines. When they fell on hard times, they were forced to borrow against or outright sell their land. Many became sharecroppers. 
uh, and they were cropping, sharecropping for a small but increasingly powerful village elite landholder class. Sharecroppers owned some, uh, excuse me, owed some percentage of their harvest to the landowner in exchange for the privilege of farming that land. And not only was that often a significant chunk of the entire year's produce, many sharecroppers were forced into lamentable insufficiency by having to farm uh, unconnected, non-contiguous plots of land scattered around the village and, its, and the surrounding area. In some cases, more time was spent walking between the fields and paddies than actually working in them. Not surprisingly, the second half of Tokugawa rule witnessed a spectacular uptick in popular disturbances, including the peasant uprisings known as Ikki. The spike is most noticeable in the final quarter of the 18th century. The Bakufu is not solely to blame for all of this, and the crop failures were caused by climate. But it is true, on the other hand, that the domainal system, the system of Hang, made it difficult to move grain from one area to another. By 1836, however, years of unnaturally cold weather had destroyed the delicate—excuse uh, the, <coughs> me—had destroyed the delicate balance of warmth and water needed to produce a rice crop, and this had spread the damage from northern from northern Japan, where it began, to central and western Japan as well. Uh, I've been fairly dark thus far, um, but th th you shouldn't believe that this was. Uh, entirely all bad for the Tokugawa economy. In fact, far from it. In the previous Japan lecture, I talked extensively about the unifying effects of alternate attendance, or Sankin Kotai, but there were a number of other positive developments. Reflecting the geographic and political diversity of the Japanese archipelago, there were major local differences in economy and society. While overall agriculture remained far and away the number one industry in Japan, its effects were diversifying, as was the economy as a whole. Perhaps the most obvious of, of uh, the effects of, of agricultural diversification uh, is what is sometimes called proto-industrialization, or as historians far cleverer than I have put it, Japan's industrious revolution. What does this mean? So recall that agricultural production was on the rise in the first century of Tokugawa. As the countryside became more productive, more of that product stayed in the countryside where it was produced. Commercialization brought with it shifting fortunes, but for many, land reclamation, improved agricultural technology for seeds, irrigation, and fertilizer, increased yields and opened new opportunities for private accumulation. In part, this is because the government was unable to extract more taxes. The difficulty of cadastral surveys and the threat of peasant protest seems to have outweighed the desire for more income. As more of that surplus remained in the countryside, cash crops for Japan's growing cities made possible, and in fact required, artisan specialization, periodic markets in the countryside, etc. So a new type of rural elite discovered the advantages of investment in agricultural improvement and began to chafe under the arbitrary pattern of village governance that relied on old families exclusively. Books on agronomy, circulated in hundreds of copies for the growing number of literate farmers. As farmers got to keep more of what they grew, they worked harder to produce even more. Over time, particularly because of the scarcity of land and of the kind of resources that might have fueled an industrial revolution, uh, these farmers developed a set of technological and institutional devices for fully abs absorbing family labor, often in the shape of small family businesses producing craft goods and other valuable or value-added products like silk. 
In summary, the term industrious revolution describes the increasingly heavy investments of labor rather than capital in production in late Tokugawa. In an archipelago without sufficient fossil fuels or the other ingredients for an industrial revolution of the type that began in England, labor was the most readily available, most flexible resource, and it was fully mobilized. A significant and growing minority of the rural population, both men and women, began to work for wages outside of the family in a variety of manufacturing endeavors. The scale of operations, uh, the size, both economic and spatial, of production and distribution networks, and the labor force itself all grew. Now, here's where we get back to Topman's argument about labor. He argued that labor intensification was intimately linked to smaller population growth. Specifically, in their struggle to survive under uh, difficult ecological circumstances, small-scale agricultural households, which constituted most of the population, adopted rhythms of life and work that trimmed their reproductive output while increasing their labor output. In the outcome, uh, these changes met society's heightened demand for labor while halting its demographic growth. Still, the signs of agricultural stagnation began to crop up, pun noted, uh, in the 18th century. As, uh, as I've mentioned, after about 1720 or so, although agricultural input did continue to expand, I recall from a previous lecture that this was due to better fertilizer techniques, etc., the acreage devoted to farming increased little. The Bakufu did not sit idly on its hands, at least not always, in the face of these problems and others. Beginning in the early 1700s, chronic debt and a belief that the regime faced a moral as well as a fiscal crisis sparked the first of several official drives to reform. Each was shorter than the previous round, and none had enduring impact. So why was that? Well, because they responded to change by trying to prevent rather than uh, take advantage of changes. They were unable to uh, provide any sort of effective solution to the problems of change itself. By attempting to, for example, curb the rising merchant class and money economy, the reform programs pointed to a return to the predominantly agrarian natural economy of early Tokugawa. Overall, reformers persisted in adopting reactionary measures with the best of intentions, but overall, they failed. Among the famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, of the Tokugawa uh, reforms was that carried out in the middle of the 17th century by Tanuma Okitsu. Tanuma served as chamberlain to one of the mid-century's least effective shoguns. In his role as senior counselor, Tanuma wielded the power of the office as if it was his, the shogun's office, as if it was his. He became something like a regent. The quarter century of Tanuma's time as Chamberlain, from 1760 to 1786, which is known commonly as the Tanuma era, is one on which neither pop popular nor scholarly consensus exists. Depending on your point of view, Tanuma was either a great hero or a great scoundrel. His approach to the Bakufu's financial difficulties was not the moral high ground of austerity practiced by previous and failed reform efforts. Rather, Tanama attacked the problems of the shogunal fisc by, quote, debasing coinage, granting mon monopolistic rights to wholesale dealers in return for payment of fees, and taxing the merchant guilds. He also promoted exports to improve Japan's trade balance, which was depleting supplies of bullion used as payment, and set in motion a number of land reclamation projects uh, to expand the economy. On the other hand, 
while these efforts are all a clear indication to many that, quote, Tanama sought to serve the public good, there is also no doubt that he was more than casually interested in advancing his private interests in the hopes of accumulating a vast fortune. His rather shameless self-enrichment and the climate of moral laxity it seems to have created in, in officialdom have led many to see Tanama as a rogue. In the end, it was not hard to see Tanama as the bad guy because the Tenmei famine, recall that it was 1782 to 1787, not only reversed any positive effects of his reforms, but Tanama was in fact blamed for the regime's difficulties and removed from office when the shogun died in 1876. He was followed by another great reformer, though, Matsudaira Sadanobu. Sadanobu was the grandson of Yoshimune, one of the greatest of the Tokugawa shoguns. He was a capable, principled daimyo who had taken measures in his own domain to prevent even a single person from dying of starvation during the Tenmei famine. His policies to restore the regime and its economy to health and balance, known as the Kansei reforms, were precisely this sort of morally upright measures that earn one a reputation as a hero, whether they are effective or not. He reduced bakufu expenditures, encouraged frugality, instituted price controls, increased the regime's rice reserves and Edo financial reserves as insurance against future famine and disaster, established a vocational training program for the unemployed and the vagrants in Edo, offered uh, unilateral debt relief to the Bakufu's vassals, and encouraged city-dwelling peasants to return to the villages. He cracked down on unlicensed prostitution, censored books, and banned co-ed bathing for persons over six. He also doubled down on Neo-Confucianism as official Bakufu doctrine. Uh, he forbade heterodox philosophies. Not only did Sadanobu's reforms fail, but he was followed in office by a hedonistic and long-lived shogun, Ienari, who undid any progress which the puritanical asceticism of Sadanobu might have actually made. The last major reform effort is known collectively as the Tempo Reforms, uh, basically 1841 to 1843, and they're important for two reasons. First, the reforms amply illustrate the problems faced by Edo in the mid-19th century. Second, their failure opened the door for even more doubts and questioning, and the edifice of shogunal and daimyo authority collapsed quickly when a foreign policy crisis became intertwined with domestic upheavals during the 1850s and 1860s. The background for this last round of Tokugawa reforms was the Tempo Famine of the 1830s. Tempo is just the rain name. It's a designation for this period of time. Um, and also the uh, 19th century phenomenon of increased foreign pressure more generally. In response to combined internal and external crisis then, the Bakufu attempted to increase food production, to impose austerity on the families uh, of the samurai and the, and the townspeople and even the farmers, and to, incur, and to curb inflation with uh, deflationary trade policies. The reforms failed to achieve their purpose, and the era is frequently described as the point at which the end of the Bakufu began to be in sight. As one historian summed it up, for damage inflicted on Tokugawa Japan's system of government, the Tempo era has no peer. These continued crises and catastrophes took a, role on, took a toll on the legitimacy of the Tokugawa system, and also on the Fisk. Outside the merchant class, which overall did pretty well in later Tokugawa, economic concerns and outright calamities uh, characterized the experience of many in society. This weakened the bonds of trust and hope 
and optimism that had helped first century Japan, uh, Tokugawa Japan to prosper. By the mid-19th century, in short, the capacity of rulers to deal with broader issues, whether domestic or foreign, was severely compromised by tensions and distrust between high and low warriors, between and within domainal ruling groups, and between domains and the bakufu. And these tensions and distrust had arisen primarily as a consequence of chronic fiscal problems and the underlying issue of resource scarcity. As early as the 1770s, Russian explorers had begun to pose a threat to Japanese interests in the far north. At first, this threat was not taken seriously. The early years of the 19th century, however, saw the Bakufu take some initial measures to maintain uh, control of this northern menace for the first time. By the time the regime had begun to take seriously the possible encroachment of these new outsiders, England and America were also beginning to display some interest in opening Japanese ports. Whalers, merchant ships, and gunboats from Europe and the United States appeared in Japanese waters with alarming frequency, pressing their claims with increasing persistence. In China, the foreign powers quickly set to work draining the Qing's economic and human resources through war and informal empire. In Japan, which had less than the way of valuable resources, the presence of the foreign boats turned a chronic low-grade crisis into an acute revolutionary situation. The very legitimacy of the Tokugawa Bakufu was called into question. And if you think about it, the term shogun means general. It's actually an abbreviation for Seitai Shogun, Barbarian Conquering Generalissimo. The title of shogun was all about protecting Japan from the barbarians. Yet, there they were, and far stronger than Japan. While it certainly raised alarm bells, the Russian presence in the north uh, after about 1780 did not in the end have much in the way of direct effect on Japanese foreign policy. Instead, it was the arrival of the British, first in 1808 to attack the Dutch at the trade port of Dejima. The two were back, uh, back in Europe, they were at war with each other. And later near Edo. Uh, these were the things that changed the Tokugawa stance toward foreign ships. In 1825, the Bakufu issued an order that imposed the most extreme interpretation yet of seclusion policy. The order was to expel by force any foreign ship in Japanese waters. This reactionary policy could not last long. For a number of reasons, the shogun did relax the shoot-first-ask-questions-later policy by 1842, so that ships drifting accidentally into Japanese waters were to be provided with food, water, and fuel. This represented a substantial improvement for those ships and sailors, at least, over the previous policy that had made foundering or wrecking off the Japanese coast a virtual death sentence. The foreign presence around Japan trapped the Bakufu between a rock and a hard place. It could hardly avoid the appearance of weakness as it tried to build up strength. The Opium War, of which at least high officials in Japan were painfully aware, confirmed their worst fears that the Western barbarians were insatiable predators, bent on conquest and profit at any cost. And this gave the basic stance of seclusion a more powerful rationale than ever. We talked about this in the case of Korea, right? Yet, any effective practical response had to avoid war, while the domains and the bakufu bolstered their defenses. At the very least, this required a short-term retreat from hardline seclusion, and the import of some of the Western technologies that had enabled the threat in the first place. 
1844, the Dutch submitted a polite entreaty to the Bakufu from King William II. As the First Opium War showed, the world had changed, and Japan could no longer remain safely disengaged from the commercial networks and diplomatic order that the Western powers were spreading throughout the globe, it said. Tokugawa officials politely rejected the Dutch advice to avoid a future war by quickly signing trade treaties. Instead, they implemented a gradual buildup of coastal defenses into the Tokugawa, uh, in the Tokugawa heartland. Uh, and also, and somewhat critically, for the first time, they allowed other domains to do the same. And then along came the USA. In 1853, Commodore Matthew Perry of the United States arrived in Japan with a message from the president at the time that more or less summarized the position of the Western powers. Agree to trade in peace or suffer the consequences in war. Specifically, the letter he delivered to the shogunate from President Millard Fillmore, who was incidentally a fascinating precursor to Donald Trump, demanded that American whalers be treated humanely when shipwrecked, and that they be able to put into Japanese ports to resupply. If possible, the letter continued, Washington would like to open trade relations between the two nations. In other words, this gunboat diplomacy was, for Americans, uh, mostly related to the U.S. need for the Japanese to sell coal to naval ships and allow provisioning stops to whalers, instead of repelling whalers and capturing or shooting all the shipwrecked sailors. The appearance of Perry's four giant steam-powered black ships, the Kurofune, uh, at least six times larger than any vessel in Japan at the time. Their appearance near Edo sparked panic among the population in and around the capital, and in the Bakufu itself. After a round of negotiations, Perry pulled on Arnold Schwarzenegger and said, I'll be back. The Bakufu's response was a hopeless failure. Intending to rally a consensus for its choice to make some concessions and avoid a war, the Bakufu actually requested that the daimyo uh, submit their advice in writing on how best to deal with the Americans. Now, this might seem like a fine idea for those of us raised in democracies, but in its own context, it further weakened the shogun's tenuous hold on power by showing weakness in the face of the very threat the system was meant to combat. And it didn't help that most of the responses were categorically against opening the country, quote-unquote, to relations with Washington. Perhaps the most famous of these objections came from Tokugawa Nariaki, lord of the Mito domain, and head of the, most, uh, the second most powerful branch of the Tokugawa family, other than the shoguns themselves. Equally famous was the dissenting and ultimately prevailing opinion of Iinausuke, the daimyo of Hikone, who was eventually appointed grand counselor to the Bakufu and of course associated uh, and assassinated as a traitor for his troubles. Uh, it's an interesting debate, but in summary, Nariaki took the sort of arch-conservative position, advocating a complete rejection of foreign advances, even at the expense of war. He derided those who shied from battle, quote, in these feeble days, men tend to cling to peace. They are not fond of defending their country by war. They slander those of us who are determined to fight, calling us lovers of war, men who enjoy conflict. But in fact, according to Nariaki, building up coastal defenses was the only reasonable solution to the problem that would not result in a collapse of the social order and likely destruction of Japan itself. In contrast, Inosuke was uh, of the opinion that military confrontation, confrontation with the well-armed, determined Americans was the more likely route to disaster, arguing that, quote, it is impossible in the crisis we now face to ensure the safety and tranquility of our country 
merely by an insistence on the seclusion laws, as we did in further time, former times. Nowski uh, sought to turn this situation into a potential positive. He took the long view that would eventually dominate. Referring to the Westerners' superior maritime technologies, for example, he wrote, quote, I understand that the Americans and Russians themselves have only recently become skilled in navigation. I do not see how the people of our country, who are clever and quick-witted, should prove inferior to Westerners if we begin training at once. This single example well summarizes his position, which was similar to the self-strengthening movements in China and Korea, the Eastern Ways and Western Technology Movement. By the time Perry returned the following year, with nine ships instead of four, just for good measure, to sign a trade deal, the Bakufu had come to the conclusion that whatever the long-term prospects might be, in the short run at least, there was no benefit to be had from war with the Americans. The March 1854 Treaty of Kanagawa allowed American ships to stop over in the relatively remote ports of Shimoda and Hakodate. Also, they were allowed to place a U.S. consul in Shimoda and gave and the U.S. gained most favored nation status, which was later extended to France, Britain, the Netherlands, and Russia. In fact, this represented something of a victory for the Japanese negotiator, who fended off some of the more onerous and unequal American demands. A revised treaty signed in 1858 made short work of this. The Harris Treaty, uh, which is that 1858 treaty, uh, neatly replicated the opium settlement with China without a shot having been fired. The new treaty opened eight ports to trade, compelled the Japanese to surrender tariff autonomy and legal jurisdiction over the treaty ports. In other words, it imposed the conditions of informal empire and extraterritoriality that the Western nations had forced on China. Of course, similar agreements followed with the other Western powers. As in China, these treaties locked Japan into a semi-colonized status, weakening the Bakufu even further. By acquiescing to tariffs fixed by other countries and to extraterritoriality especially, Japan had ceded substantial control of its own domestic legal system to outsiders. Remember that extraterritoriality meant that foreign crimes went lightly punished, if at all. In the 1870s and 1880s, these injustices, a rape unpunished, an assault excused, came to be front page material in the new national press. They were experienced each time as a renewed blow to pride, yet another violation of Japanese sovereignty. And as it did in many other places, the process of dealing with the pushy barbarians was the critical factor in creating modern nationalism, a sense of collective identity under threat that had really uh, not existed prior to that point. Reactions to Bakufu fecklessness and the foreign threat were diverse. At the most general level, there was widespread intense opposition to the entry of outsiders into Japan. On the other hand, few Japanese leaders had qualms about going to the West themselves, and they did in significant numbers. They went on fact-finding missions, etc. in the following years. The reasons for opposing foreign interference were varied. Some feared the destabilizing force of Christianity. Others had chauvinistic ideas about national purity. Almost all feared colonialism and regime and social collapse. Look at what had happened when mighty China had failed to keep the foreigners out. The most important distinction was between those who recognized the need for systemic change and those who rejected the idea. The former group believed that Japan would have to learn from the West in order to overcome it. The latter group believed that Japan should rise up, expel the barbarians, and restore the status quo ante. 
Ultimately, this faction failed, and while the birth of the modern Japanese state was billed as a quote-unquote restoration of the emperor, which sounds nice and conservative and had the benefit of playing on the existing diarchy, uh, it was in fact a revolution of defensive nationalism that understood that it was better to change and survive than to die or be enslaved in the impossible task of expelling and overthrowing the barbarians. In addition to the anger and anxiety over the political situation, the economic impact of foreign incursions was severe and had severe consequences. Gold in Japan could be purchased with silver coins for about one-third the going global rate, and then sold in China for triple the purchase price. When the Bakufu caught on to this gold drain in 1860, it debased its gold coins, expanding the money supply, and, resulted, and this resulted in crippling inflation. Inflation was seen in the silk and grain markets, too. And even though cheap foreign cotton goods and the like were good for consumers in the short run, they undercut and put out of business many domestic concerns. Riots and protests erupted around Japan. In 1866, the year of peak inflation, rioters destroyed hundreds of rice merchant shops in large food riots in Edo and in Osaka. Upheaval was not just playing out in the streets, though, and the sharks circling the Bakufu were not only in the seas. The shocking weakness of the shogunate in the face of any real of the first real foreign threat awakened the long slumbering ambitions of domains and factions and individuals around Japan. Some of the outer domains, those who had opposed the Tokugawa back in 1600 at Sekigahara and continued to pay the price two and a half centuries later, were stirred to action by the prospect of overthrowing the hated shogunal order. Political opportunism was not limited to the peripheries either. The Mito domain. Uh, represented by Tokugawa Nariaki, who we've already talked about, also recognized an opportunity to seize power and create a new order. Ultimately, it was the outer domains of Satsuma, modern Kagoshima, Choshu, modern Yamaguchi, and Tosa, modern Kochi, who led the revolution that brought down the, the Bakufu. But the danger from within of the Mito Tokugawa collateral branch was equally real, in no small part because the shogun at the time was weak and airless. Between foreign pressures, domestic unrest at multiple levels of society, and the succession crisis, the Tokugawa regime had been dealt a painfully weak hand, and then it played it badly, beginning, as noted above, with soliciting advice for how to deal with the barbarians. The crucial misstep for the shogunate came next, or the, sorry, the next crucial misstep for the shogunate came with the Harris Treaty. Uh, the chief negotiator decided to strengthen his hand in both foreign policy and the succession dispute by seeking the emperor's ratification of the treaty. Now, this was a fairly radical departure from centuries-old precedent, and also a radical failure. The emperor at the time, Kolme, was surrounded by xenophobic advisors, and he was ignorant of world affairs. So were they. They opposed the treaty, dealing another huge blow to the prestige of the Bakufu. Grand Councillor E. Nalske, who we've also talked about, had already, by this time, begun a purge of the most troublesome resistors, including his nemesis Nariaki, and he decided to move ahead with the treaty regardless. It was this good deed that earned him death at the hands of Mito Samurai in 1860. As if to prove that history has a sense of irony, if not humor, the anti-Western samurai assassin apparently shot Nalske with a Japanese-made copy of a U.S. Navy revolver, which Commodore Perry had brought with him. The killing of Inalske inaugurated yet another set of troubles for the Bakufu, the political terrorism of disaffected, mostly lower-ranking samurai who styled themselves as shishi, or men of high purpose. 
as Marius Jensen wrote, because they were uh, less invested in the system than high-ranking samurai and therefore had less to lose. They felt free to bond closely with friends, to party, and to plot. Unencumbered by the obligations that were attached to high status, they were relatively free to cross domain borders. They mingled in the fencing schools that sprang up as samurai rediscovered their calling and in heated discussions of national affairs. They began as impulsive hotheads, imperfectly informed about the context of foreign affairs and prone to quick judgments and simplistic solutions. They weren't afraid to die, and they weren't afraid to kill. And their participation in national politics introduced an explosive element to the tangled debates of the, 19, of the 1860s. As Andrew Gordon put it, the Tokugawa Bakufu thus faced a triple threat from foreign powers, restive daimyo, and hot-headed samurai. Japan had, at this point, entered the period known as Bakumatsu, the end of the Bakufu. The end result would be the fall of the Bakufu in 1868, and the emergence of Japan as a modern nation-state, just 15 years after Perry's arrival. In comparison both to Japan's East Asian neighbors and to the chaotic years of the Bakumatsu period, 1853 to 1868, Japan's transition to modern political, economic, and cultural systems was surprisingly smooth, surprisingly successful and we'll discuss the details of this revolution next time.